Earlier this week, Jewish people around the world celebrated Tu B'Shvat. Religiously, Tu B'Shvat is the new year for trees. Fruit trees in Judaism are a gift of God. We see this in a few ways. God gives Adam and Eve fruit so they don't have to work for food. And when we plant trees, we wait three years before eating the fruit in order to distance ourselves from the act of planting. And with a few telling exceptions, we can't bring fruit as an offering because fruit doesn't represent our effort. So we Jews take fruit trees pretty seriously. And for those who are religious, this holiday is an opportunity to thank God for his or her gifts to us. And for those who are not, it is an opportunity to celebrate nature itself. It has become a kind of Jewish Earth Day. I'm a little late, but I figured, you know what, this is a great time to discuss climate change. It is probably also a great time to lose all my listeners. Nonetheless, here goes. Any argument about climate change starts with the science. The big questions are clear. Is it warming, and is that warming caused by humans? It might seem unbelievable to many of you, but I know actual scientists on both sides of those questions. For this reason, I, a non-scientist, can't really argue the science. What's far more interesting to me is the political persuasion of those holding the different views. Those who rail against climate change and fear the end of the world unless we all start wearing solar panels tend to be liberal. And those who dismiss it all as a bunch of hot air, overripe apocalyptic warnings, and massage data tend to be conservative. Very few people cross these lines. So for me, the issue of climate change appears to primarily be an issue of values, not science. Recently, I've been reading my mother's magnum opus, a book called Reflections on the Logic of the Good. In it, she presented her understanding of the world as a whole through a series of arguments about determinism, relativism, monism, and other highfalutin academic concepts. Right in her introduction, she makes the following claim, quote, Although some deterministic scientific theories have proven to be fruitful ways of predicting some phenomena, the deterministic preposition in the social sciences has not significantly increased the accuracy of our predictions. Basically, science is really good at some things and less good at others. In complex systems, particularly those involving people, it actually does a quite a poor job. Thus, the failure of economics to predict economic growth, or the mass adoption of psychology to actually make people happier. The science predicts human phenomena quite poorly. There are even more striking examples, though. Not so long ago, in the 1960s and 70s, people were predicting hundreds of millions of deaths from starvation, shortages of key minerals, and a general collapse of society due to population growth. If the world had continued as it was, all of these things would have occurred. But none of these things happened because people adapted. They developed ways of using less scarce resources. They developed new ways of growing crops and so on. Millions of individual choices led to a world today where global poverty is lower than it has ever been, and life expectancy globally is higher. The science was not wrong. It just couldn't predict the human element. More important than the science was the recommendations of those who predicted complete collapse. They didn't want individual human solutions. They wanted global governmental solutions. They wanted restrictions on the right to have children, think the one-child policy. And they wanted global government to redistribute resources because they believed that was necessary to save the world. They essentially saw a closed system, and they wanted to rescue it by controlling the variables they saw in that system, population, consumption, and distribution. 
I suspect their thought process was actually the reverse of what they thought it was. They favored central government control and economic equality, and they feared a world in which population entered unknown territory. And so they worked backward into an argument where these levers had to be used to save human civilization. They were not the first. With the rise of genetic science, people realized the basic mechanism by which traits were passed down through generations. They were right about the science. But then they hijacked it to support their other beliefs. The poor masses of the world were degenerate and were multiplying out of control, particularly with the increase in economic wealth with industrialization. In order to fix this for the good of humanity, those poor masses had to be limited in numbers. What followed was eugenics, which forced large numbers of Americans to be sterilized so their spawn wouldn't overrun the future. And accompanying that were sterilization programs in the third world. From there, it wasn't such a huge leap to Nazi endeavors to more aggressively cleanse the earth of undesirables, because they did it all in the name of science, but they used the science to back up their underlying beliefs. Again, the science, legitimate science, was used to serve pre-existing beliefs and resist against fear changes. Science was used to serve beliefs in world governments or racial dominance, and it was used to address fears of the degenerate masses or massive increases in overpopulation. The challenging thing to do is to accept the science and then stop and ask what values you are actually serving. Because science can tell you the mechanism of things very well. And while it does a far poorer job of predicting the behavior of complex systems in humans, it really can't do the job of making moral judgments about what should be done based on those predictions. And I think we see the same thing today. I believe the basic science of global warming is sound. Warming is happening. We are definitely contributing to it. I don't think we know enough to say we alone are contributing to it. The system is too complex. It is possible we are causing far more warming than we are seeing. But other factors are cooling envir our environment. It is also possible we are causing far less warming than we are seeing, and other factors are warming our environment. The system is extremely complex. Predicting what's going to happen in 100 years gets sketchy. Our attempt at particular predictions, the end of snow, massive increases in hurricanes, permanent droughts in various regions, etc., have proven less than perfect. This is why we switched from global warming to climate change and argued so strongly that weather isn't climate. The details of how the system works continue to escape us. Thus, Israel, which was supposed to be entering a near-permanent drought, has had multiple years of ample rain. Hurricanes have not increased in intensity or frequency, just the news coverage of them has. The Antarctic ice shit pack has grown, and the U.S. and Europe have recently seen significant snowfalls. The details go both ways. Australian wildfires don't prove the details of global warming any more than the examples cited above disprove it. The system is complex. On wildfires, let me share a bit from my mother's book, A River Went Out of Eden, which she wrote in 1982, based on notes from the early 70s. At the time of writing, she was living in the middle of a national forest. Quote, the Forest Service should stay out of people management. They do a much better job at managing trees, and they were remarkably good at putting out forest fires. As one game warden pointed out to us, forest fires in and of themselves are not bad. Moderate fires are needed from time to time to expose new foliage, and a moderate fire will significantly improve the health of forest vegetation and indirectly the viability of game. The Indians knew this, of course, and since their very lives depended on a constant supply of game animals, the Indians managed their forests with spring burns. In the spring, only the weak, diseased, and dead wood will burn, and by eliminating this trash wood early in the year, the risk of serious forest fires in the summer is minimized. 
we white men have managed the force less efficiently. According to Sylvan, just as a note, this is my great uncle, also known as the last of the mountain men, we have succeeded in controlling our fires at relatively early stages without spring burns, and in doing so we have preserved many of the overripe diseased trees. Our forests are literally rotting. The result is a proliferation of the so-called harmful insects, and with the insects, the need to dump millions of tons of insecticide on these same forests in an effort to eliminate the diseases. Nor do we have any really attractive alternatives to this policy. If we now remove all fire control, as has been advocated, the forest will be ripe for the torch and for destruction by insects. To begin a policy of non-intervention now would probably translate into disastrously big fires in the next few years. Really big burns. My mother wasn't arguing about global warming or climate change. That era was still the era of predicted mass starvation due to overpopulation. She was just talking about fire control. And yet, her predictions have borne true. Is her theory right? I don't know. In complex systems, the details often don't prove anything. The question then becomes, how should we react to this? This is where the science is pretty useless. What matters in this discussion is values. Let's say our interest is human well-being. We've seen lots of weather news, but what is the big-picture impact on humankind? For the sake of simplicity, let's assume all refugees, war deaths, poverty, and deaths from natural disasters are due to climate change. How are we doing? Well, the last decade saw a 75% drop in deaths from natural disasters versus the average for the prior 100 years. It saw a 50% drop in deaths from war based on the average of the prior 50 years. That excludes the world wars. And there's been over a 70% drop in the extreme global poverty rate since 1990. Refugee numbers are up, but not when adjusted for population. Our current peak is 20% lower than the peak in 1990. So while we're not doing great there, we're not doing so bad either. One area of significant increase is internally displaced persons. Their numbers, defined by those the UN has programs to support, are far higher. And we'll get into that later. All in all, though, people are not being killed by natural disasters, wars are killing fewer people, and poverty has improved. This is not the apocalypse. So if humankind was your emphasis, what would you do? I don't think warming has caused all the improvements I listed. I think the opening of human ingenuity and wealth has enabled these improvements. Perhaps in spite of climate change, or perhaps hand in hand with it. It is a complex system, and it can be hard to say. What this data does suggest is that it's possible warming might actually be good for humankind. For example, we have vast northern tracts of land which could become increasingly fertile due to increased temperature. And, so far, we don't seem to be losing arable land. Green land is now at an all-time recorded high, and yields have increased in almost all the nations characterized by drylands, although farming yields might well have changed in individual regions. In other words, even if land is being destroyed and change forced by climate change, our generally increasing flexibility is offsetting this, at least from a human well-being perspective. Will change happen? Of course. But to deal with it, we need flexibility, not more control. Locking down our societies with massively increased regulation and controls will make us less able to adapt, not more able. We need to improve the ability for human settlement to shift or for individuals to rely on new sources of income. In summary, if human well-being is our concern, then it appears global warming is not an overwhelming threat and might actually be a benefit. And from a human well-being perspective, climate change is best dealt with through adaptability and flexibility. How about life as a whole? That is what sets the Earth apart, as far as we know. Well, green coverage is at a modern high. Some of this is due to farming, some of this is due to reforestation, but some of it might also be due to increases in CO2, which encourages plant growth and thus many other forms of life. 
greenhouses, from which the term greenhouse gas is borrowed, have an extremely high CO2 levels. Again, there will be changes, but ecosystems can and do shift, and over longer time periods, so does the genetic makeup of the organisms that live in them. So from an overall life perspective, warming, again, might actually be a good thing. So what value systems demand strong resistance to climate change? We can see some of this in the Democratic presidential candidates. Every candidate has backed the Green New Deal. How does it deal with climate change? With universal health care, a jobs guarantee, economic justice, and so on. Oh, and net zero emissions. The underlying value being served is economic equality and freedom from fear. In other words, classic left-wing economic values are the goal climate science is bent to serve. More extreme versions of this demand global government and the elimination of capitalism. Again, science is used to justify the service of other values. I think there's another underlying system at play, though, and I think it explains why climate change concern is primarily focused in European cultures. To quote my mother's book, The River Went Out of Eden, again, she wrote, For some reason I can't fathom, Americans enjoy their feelings of guilt. Many want to believe that a state of nature free of man is morally and ecologically superior to a state of nature contaminated by the presence of man. It's another version of original sin. No matter what man does, he is grossly, almost obscenely, evil. On this theory, every forest fires man caused, and every animal that is extinct is a victim of man-contrived genocide. My mother was speaking about values. Values, I think, that pervade Judeo-Christian societies. The cultural impact of original sin has outlived its religious source. In today's world, God has increasingly been replaced by nature. And so modern Western cultures conceive of a perfect state of nature. Lots of philosophers, artists, and poets have captured the concept and imagine humankind violating it because, well, man is inherently destructive. Layer on a nice serving of apocalyptic messianism, also a classic Judeo-Christian and Islamic concept, and you end up with our current recipe. We sin against nature because it is in our nature to sin, and nature will cleanse us through catastrophe. This is a value system, and it is one that would sharply curtail human economic activity, consumption, reproduction, and freedom. To me, it is this value system that is the cleanest explanation for the global movement we see in action today. So what do I think? What values do I serve? Fundamentally, I serve the cause of human fulfillment. I want people to live fulfilling lives. And the recipe for a fulfilling life? Well, while individual cases will certainly vary, I believe fulfillment fundamentally comes from a cycle of creation and the dedication of that creation to the timeless. Or to put it biblically, humankind is here to work and to guard, to create for six days and to rest on the seventh, to balance the goodness of creation with the holiness that comes from reaching beyond time itself. If people are crushed by circumstance, either man-made or natural, they will be unable to lead fulfilling lives. However, if we have the means, we should seek to open opportunities for others to experience fulfilling lives. That's really why I'm running for president. I have the opportunity. A fulfilling life isn't just about GDP or economics, though. That is only half of the equation. It is an enabling half, but it does not stand alone. Wealth gives us flexibility so we can adjust to changes and shocks. But wealth should be used to invest in causes that are greater than ourselves, including lifting up those who have no wealth and who live at the whim of circumstance. 
I think humans lean towards this, naturally. If survival is on the table, people will do anything, destroy anything, to get by. But once their fears move beyond starvation, they begin to value things like clean air and green spaces. They begin to invest in things greater than their own survival. Sometimes they even begin to consume less, as raw materials consumption charts from Europe and the U.S. appear to show. I like to think that as people become wealthier, their values shift from seeking survival to seeking fulfillment through a purpose greater than themselves. And for many people, that purpose is the protection of the earth. So what would I do from a policy perspective? My first priority would be the adaptability of human societies and economies. Climate change is only one way in which our world changes. Earthquakes, volcanoes happen. We face new diseases. There are solar flares. We face constant new social and cultural forces. The world is constantly flexing. And if we are too rigid, we will snap. But if we can bend, then our societies can flourish despite or even perhaps because of the flexing. This increased flexibility is why I believe we are seeing a drop in war and disaster deaths, perhaps despite climate change. It is also why refugees aren't at an all-time high. We are increasingly able to deal with displacement within countries. It might even be why the number of recorded internally displaced people have increased. With increasing wealth, we have newfound abilities to support those who have been impacted by change. How would I support flexibility? There are broad ideas. Limited regulation, a simplified tax system that encourages productivity and security in every strata of society, a universal healthcare system that rewards cost-conscious consumption, and so on. But there are also very specific ideas. First, I would discourage debt by taxing it. In good times, debt enables people to deploy resources quickly, but when financial panic hits or conditions change, debt ties people to sunk investments, to sunk costs. It inhibits their flexibility. On the other hand, I would encourage equity investments, even in home purchases. You can't be underwater if the other part of the house is owned not by a debt-holding bank, but by another equity-holding institution or individual. Second, I would allow one government payout for those living in disaster-prone areas. If you live in a flood zone, the government will rescue from exactly one flood. The same should apply to fires, earthquakes, and hurricanes. We don't want to encourage pig-headed behavior in the face of change. We want to encourage adaptation. If you lose your home in a hurricane, build another one someplace else. And third, I would encourage new thinking on resettlement policies. People in poor countries are often ill-equipped for self-sustaining life in the developed world. So I would establish small western zones in troubled areas. People would be able to move to them and adapt to a more modern reality. They'd also be able to adapt that reality to their own cultures. With reduced dependence on the land, because more modern agriculture could massively improve yields, they would be able to stay in their home regions. Or, if they desired, they would also be able to move on to the West itself and integrate without being a burden on their newfound countries. The entire northern hemisphere is either at or passing a native population peak. In particular, fertility rates are plumbing among white and Asian populations. As a result, there are increasing amounts of land that are being left fallow because the farming population is dropping below the levels that can sustain farming in multiple Asian and European countries. With offshore pre-integration, these societies, these European societies and Asian societies can be sustained through the introduction of new economically productive populations without losing their essential values and character. Do I have the perfect answers? No, 
This is why I would act with a very light hand. I don't think the world is coming to an end, and I don't think all our actions should be judged in the light of the carbon impact. I don't think government should mandate human suffering in the name of adapted concepts of original sin and apocalypse, with nature replacing God. I do recognize that many people will seek their fulfillment, their investment in a cause greater than themselves, through service to the earth. For them, it is holiness. And so people in wealthy countries should be able to choose to consume less, to recycle more, to pay for carbon capture, to invest in anti-carbon technologies, to honor those who reduce greenhouse gases, to proselytize their beliefs and their values to others, and even to engage in marginally beneficial activities for the purposes of sharing their belief system. They should be totally empowered to do so. But I would act with a light hand. Of course, government should reflect the consensus values of its citizens, that's why, when the bulk of the American people accepted and embraced the compromises needed for the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, those acts happened. Those acts reflected values that have been universally adopted by wealthier societies. And so, they are part of our reality, although there is a constant struggle around determining which compromises, in the name of clean air and water, are actually appropriate. But the American people haven't accepted and embraced the compromises around greenhouse gas emissions. The value systems that demand those compromises just aren't strong enough. And government shouldn't force the values of a few on the many. So, in a nutshell, what is my position on climate change? I believe there is human-caused warming. I believe this warming will likely drive significant changes in human activities. I do not believe this warming will lead to environmental collapse, and I do not believe the changes in human activities will most effectively be met by massive government mandates and restrictions. Instead, I believe that if we support wealth creation, flexibility, and regional mobility, we might not only weather climate change, we might see benefits from it. Oh, and while I won't make Tubishvat a national holiday, both eco- and religiously-minded folk should feel free to celebrate it, each in their own way. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll stick around in the future.